If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Today's message, which is entitled A New Freedom, is another in our series of following the theme of the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. This new life that Christ gives to us begins with what's called a second birth, being born again. Jesus said that to Nicodemus as recorded in John chapter three, that one must not only have a physical birth, but it must also have a spiritual birth. And that birth comes from one's repentance of his sin, a realization and acceptance of Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. And when you repent of your sins and embrace him and trust him, the Holy Spirit who is Jesus in the spirit takes up residence in your hearts and he brings new life to you. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The other thing that we looked at, of course, had to do with the security, the confidence that we have in being a Christian in that we can never lose our salvation. As we say, once saved, always saved. Doesn't mean that you have the license to just go and do as you please, but just means that you have a new master and a new commandment that we are to follow him and love him and serve him. And then there's a new communication where we can talk with the Lord. It's called prayer. And it's a two-way channel whereby we can communicate with him and share with him whatever is on our hearts. But at the same time, God speaks to us. The Holy Spirit speaks to our spirit. And so we have a wonderful time of fellowship as we pray and commune with the living God. And then there's the challenge that we face for every day. And this is something that I'm going to focus on a little more today. And that has to do with temptation. Every one of us, every single day are faced with one or more temptations. And then there's the habit. The habit that we form what we call a quiet time, that is reserving some time every day in prayer with the Father, just having fellowship with the Father, withdrawing from the world, being by ourselves in seclusion, face-to-face, one-on-one with the Lord Jesus, and having a quiet time and allowing him to share with us what is on his heart and with us. And then we have the guidebook, a new guidebook. It's called the Bible. This is God's Word. The psalmist said, it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so we have the Bible that we can turn to for direction every day of our lives as to which way God wants us to go and what decisions we are to make that are honoring to him and in keeping with his will for our lives. So today we're going to be looking at this idea of freedom. We are free in Christ, but uh, we are not to take advantage of that freedom to use it as that we might live any way as we please but the freedom to honor him. And we realize that even though uh, we are Christians, we do sin. And when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom we can go, who understands, who empathizes and sympathizes with us. And we can just pour our hearts out to him, sharing with him whatever's on our hearts, not being afraid that he's going to betray confidentiality. Uh, He loves us. He's not going to reject us or discard us from himself once we are his We are his forever, and he understands what we go through each single day of our lives. With that in mind, then, let's look at 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous or faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar and his word is not in us. I want to ask you a couple of questions, maybe three questions. First of all, can a believer sin? And the answer is yes, he can. The Bible records several believers who sinned against God. Of course, there was Adam and Eve. Uh, they weren't called Christians at that time, but they certainly knew the Lord. They were the first ones to have been created by the Lord and to have had fellowship with the Lord. God told them, don't eat of that fruit of the tree. They disobeyed him and disobedience is a sin. And so although they were in fellowship with the Lord, they disobeyed. And then there was David. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murder in that he had her husband killed so that he could cover up the sin that they had committed. And then of course there was Moses. Moses killed an Egyptian, you remember. And then there was Peter. Peter who denied the Lord not once or twice, but three different times he denied that he even knew the Lord. So the Bible records other examples of individuals who were followers of the Lord and yet who sinned. But not only do we have the Bible to verify the fact that we as sinners sin, we have personal experience. I suppose if I were to ask you to give a testimony today that all of us could stand up and remember and recall and rehearse something that we had done in the act of disobedience or yielding to temptation or whatever it was. All of us sin, all of us are tempted. The Bible says in the book of Corinthians that temptation is common to man. That is, it doesn't matter who you are or where you may live, every single individual is tempted. Now being tempted is not a sin. It's the yielding to the temptation that brings the sin. If temptation were sinful, then Jesus would have sinned because the Bible tells us that he was driven out into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. And yet he did not sin. He was sinless and perfect. And yet he was tempted. Um, as um, I've, I've heard it spoken before, uh, that uh, you, you are tempted, not because you are sinful, but because you are human. Every human being is subject to temptation. Someone once said, an unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian is, one who, is a child who sins against his father. The unbeliever sins against the law. The believer sins against love. So yes, all of us who claim to know Christ still occasionally will sin. Then the second question is, if a believer sins, can he lose his salvation? And of course the answer is no. Based again on holy scriptures, the Lord gives to us eternal life and we shall never perish. John 10, 10 records the words of our Lord who said that we are safe, protected, double security by not only being in his hands, 
but in the hands of the Father also. And no one, not even the devil himself, can snatch us out of the Father's hands. If a believer sins and we do, what happens? And what can we do about it? Well, that's what we want to focus on today. And so if you have your outline with you today, you can keep up as we work our way through this message. There are three basic ideas that I want to explore with you briefly. First of all, what happens when a believer sins? And secondly, how is a believer to confess his sins? And then thirdly, how can a believer be sure that his sins are forgiven? So let's explore this first idea, and that is what happens when a believer sins. Someone has said to err is human and to conceal it is too. It is human nature to conceal sin rather than to confess it. Sometimes uh, the Lord just kind of has to drag it out of us and he cannot forgive us of our sins if we are not willing to confess and admit that we have sinned. Notice in 1 John 1, Three different times, John asks the question or says, makes the statement, if we say, look at verse six, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look at verse eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, then we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Although in verse 10, he does not use the word truth. We do know from other scripture verses that God's word is truth. And so in verses six and eight and 10, he says, if we refuse to admit and confess our sins and say that we've not sinned, then the truth is not in us. So the Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Did you catch those two words? Confess and forsake. The two go together. It's not good if we, it's no good if we, if we go to the Father and confess our sins, but then get up and go out from our time with the Lord only to commit the same sin over again and again. We must not only confess, we must also forsake. Now notice three things or four things that about this, uh, what happens when we uh, commit a sin as a believer. Now we're not talking about a lost person. We're talking about a Christian, talking about a believer when he sins. When you sin, what happens? Well, first of all, it disrupts your fellowship with the Father. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed communion with the Father. They enjoyed walking with the Father, having fellowship with the Father until they disobeyed by taking of the forbidden fruit. When they disobeyed the Lord, a barrier was suddenly erected between them and the Father. It would no longer be as it had been in the past. Now sin stood in the way. And of course, our Lord provided the way, God the Father did in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that he provided adequate covering for their sin of nakedness. Well, the, sin, the nakedness wasn't the sin, but to cover their nakedness. And, and if, he, if he used the skin uh, to cover their nakedness, where did that skin come from? It had to come from an animal somewhere in the Garden of Eden. An animal had to die. Blood had to have been shed. And then the skin was taken and used to cover up their sins. So the Lord will not look upon our sins. That's why Jesus came and died for us. His blood covers our sins 
So when the Lord looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He sees the righteousness and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sins. But if I allow sin in my life as a believer to go unconfessed, unforsaken, unforgiven, it serves as a barrier between myself and my fellowship with the Father. Now notice, I'm saying fellowship, not sonship. I am forever a child of God. I am a son of the heavenly father because I have been born again. My salvation is secure, but it interrupts my fellowship with the father. I've told you many times before, or use the example of an individual, say you fell down and broke your arm. As long as your arm is unbroken, you are in pain and you cannot use your arm effectively until it gets set so that it can heal and mend the same thing is true about your relationship with the Father. It kind of, just like a, a broken relationship, a broken fellowship, not sonship, but fellowship. The Bible tells us uh, that if we regard or hide or conceal iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. He will not hear. Take your Bibles, keep your place here at 1 John, but turn to the book of Psalm. Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32 is a prayer written by Kate David uh, to uh, ask the Lord for forgiveness of a sin that he committed. Uh, Psalm chapter 32 and the first uh, three verses of scripture or verse, uh, well, first five, four verses. Psalm 32, one. Now listen to what David says. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Now, a transgression is something that you know is wrong and you deliberately do it. So a transgression is a breaking of God's laws. He says, thou shalt not steal. You steal something, you have transgressed the law. You've broken the law. It's something that you know you shouldn't do, but you deliberately do it. So he said, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered the word sin here simply means to twist or to use something again in a different way than what it was intended to be used. Verse two, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Those three words, transgression, iniquity, uh, sin, are all used, three words used in the Bible. He says your transgressions are forgiven, your sin is covered, your iniquity is not uh, added to your account, it's, it's not imputed uh, to you and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at verse three. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So as long as he went uh, without confessing his sin, uh, he was a miserable person, a miserable person, the sin of adultery and murder that he had committed and this along with Psalm 51, his prayer of confession. So it disrupts your fellowship. Notice the second thing that it does, it deceives the believer's faith. Go back to 1 John chapter one and then verse 18. It deceives your faith. It says, if you say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. <laughs> the, the truth is not in us, so it affects our faith. For me to live in sin and practice sin and yet say, well, I haven't sinned, well, that's to pull the wool over my own eyes, so to speak, and it deceives myself. When God saved you, he didn't make you perfect, he declared you forgiven. 
And so you just need to own up to the fact that, yes, Father, I am your child. Uh, and and I, I have sinned against you and I've disobeyed you or whatever the sin is and, and ask for forgiveness. But for me to just sin and then say, well, I'm all right. I haven't really sinned, just maybe misbehaved a little bit, but call it what it is. Thirdly, it degrades the believer's heavenly father. Look at verse 10. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar. Well, who is him? God. When we say, well, I haven't sinned, then we're calling God a liar because God has said you have sinned. You have sinned and fallen short of my glory. And so the believer lies to others. Look at verse six. There's a, a progress that is made here. In verse six, he, he lies to other people. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. So we lie to other people. Look at verse eight. We lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves. And then verse 10, we call God a liar. So it affects our fellowship with the father. And then number four, it destroys the believer's fruitfulness. It destroys the believer's fruitfulness. And we say, well, where do you get that? We'll go back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, along with Psalm 32, are prayers that David wrote and prayed in confessing his sin. And in Psalm 51, in verse 12, listen to what David said. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice the year there. He's not talking about his joy. He's talking about salvation. Joy comes from the Lord. And when I sin, the joy is just kind of smothered out. And David realized that. He, he realized that he had sinned against the Lord. Uh, it's just like a, the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son who went off that Jesus told about in his parable? And, and when he came to himself, he said, uh, uh, how many servants back home in my father's house has everything he wants to eat and need and sleep and clothes wear and everything. I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Notice what he said. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. You see, sin ultimately from the very beginning is actually a sin against God. Whatever the sin is, it is first and foremost a sin against God. Then next, it's a sin against yourself and the other people that it may affect. And so we, we are, uh, the, the joy is gone. When the joy is gone, you're not going to be in fellowship with the Father and you're not going to be a productive Christian. You're, you're just not going to produce the things that God wants. Bestore unto me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you, the, psalm, the, the writer of Proverbs says. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. So it will just render you fruitless. You'll not walk with the Lord in fellowship with him. You'll not produce the fruit of the spirit that he talks about uh, over in the book of Galatians. It will just kind of nip it, all of it in the bud. You'll just not be a, a very productive or very joyful Christian at all. But notice the second thing. How is a believer to confess his sins? Notice in verse nine, he says, if we confess our sins. Two things about confessing sin. First of all, let it be continually. Let it be continually. Because in verse nine, if we confess our sins, now, you cannot see this in the English language, but in the Greek language, the word confess carries the idea of a continual, ongoing process. It's not just something that you do, or like you would say, well, Lord, today I've probably committed a lot of sins, just forgive me of those sins. No, that's, that's not the way it works. Or at the end of the day, Lord, I look back and all these sins I've committed. It needs to be continual. When the Lord, when the Holy Spirit 
makes you aware of a sin that you have committed, you should settle it right then and there. And it should be an ongoing process. Confession is to be a habitual practice. We're not to let our sins snowball and stockpile. Confession is to be a day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, minute by minute activity in our lives. It was said of Charles Haddon Spurgeon that someone noticed him one day walking down the street in London when suddenly he stopped, took off his head, raised his face toward heaven and said something. Somebody who had seen that asked him, what were you doing? He said, well, at that moment, the Holy Spirit made me aware of a sin that I'd committed and I didn't want it to continue being between a barrier between myself and the Father, so I stopped right then and got it right with God. That's what it means. Whenever the Holy Spirit makes you aware of a sin in your life, deal with it right then, continually. A second thing is completely. Notice he says in verse nine, if we confess confess our sins. The word sins is plural. So we don't commit just once in any and every sin that we commit. We should, of course, name it to the Father. And, 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 we, and when we completely confess, we get specific. We begin to, don't just say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. If, if you are aware of what you did, name it. Claim it. It's yours, your sin. So you say, uh, Lord, I lied. I didn't tell the truth. Please forgive me. Or Lord, I disobeyed your commandment. Name the commandment that you disobeyed. Name it. Claim it and ask God to forgive you. Or say, Lord, I lusted after someone. I, I know that was wrong. Please forgive me. Lord, I was angry. I, I shouldn't have lost my temper and blew up like I did. I shouldn't have said those, those words that I said to my wife or to my husband or to the person that I was working with. I just lost my cool. Please forgive me for the anger and the bitterness that I have in my heart. You, you name it. And you say, well, I'm not aware of my, my sins. I, I don't know of any that I've committed. Well, guess that. <laughs> Lord will show you. Just tell it. Name it. How can I ask God to forgive me of sin if I don't say, God, I coveted or I lusted or I lied or I stole or whatever it was. I've got to name it to the Lord if I want him to forgive me of it. So let it be continually and let it be completely. And then number three, how can a believer be sure that his sins are forgiven? Well, God's forgiveness is based on two things, his character and the cross of Calvary. The character of God. Look at what it says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That's what the King James says. My translation, the New American Standard says that he's faithful and righteous. So God's character is faithful and righteous, faithful and just. In other words, you can take God at his word. God has said, if you will confess, I will forgive. And God is faithful to his word. God does not lie. He cannot lie. He will not lie. And when he makes a promise to you, he will keep that promise. And God has promised, if you will confess, I will forgive. I am faithful to do so. In Psalm 36 and verse 5, the psalmist wrote, Your loving kindness, which is another way of saying mercy. What is mercy? Mercy, you take love and you kindness and you put them together. And so many times in the translations of the scriptures, it will call or define mercy as loving kindness. 
So in Psalm 36, 5, the New American Standard says, Your loving kindness, your mercy, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. To say that God's mercy reaches to the heavens and that his faithfulness extends to the heavens means that there is no limit to God's faithfulness. There is no, uh, God never fails. God never forgets. God never falters. God never forfeits his word. God makes a promise. You confess, I will forgive. And God's very character is dependent upon his faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So every single day we are under attack. We are in spiritual warfare. The devil is constantly uh, shooting his fiery darts at us. He hates us. He wants to destroy us and he will do anything and everything that he can to take us down. He studies us. He knows where our weaknesses are. He knows what buttons to push to set us off. And so we need protection, daily protection. And so we are to pray to God for help and for, for protection against those fiery darts and trust that God will keep his word to protect us. Thomas Chislam wrote one of my favorite hymns, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. God never changes, and his promises never change either. He is faithful, and he is just to forgive. The character of God is at stake. Not only the character of God, but there is the cross of Christ. And for this, we go to the second chapter of 1 John and the first two verses. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, see, there it is right there. That's, there's comfort there and said, I'm writing so that you won't sin. But if you do sin, or rather he could even say, when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, what is he saying here? Well, two things about our Lord. First of all, he is our advocate. The word advocate is um, another word for lawyer, a lawyer. If you have to go to a court of law for some reason, maybe somebody's suing you or there's some, some problem that has to be settled by having to go to the court, uh, you, you probably need a lawyer. And uh, the, the reason why you need a lawyer is because he has studied the law. He's got a degree in law. And uh, he, he knows what the law means. He knows how to read all those big old words that, you know, you, you can't read anything they write or say without getting a dictionary out. And, and so you, you, need, you need somebody who knows uh, the lingo, knows the words, uh, knows how to go about doing this, knows how to represent you. What he does, he speaks for you. He stands up before the judge and the jury and he talks for you. He, he defends you. He presents your case to them. Well, Jesus is our advocate. He is our lawyer. And he represents us at the throne of grace. And uh, he 
understands us. He knows what we're going through. He made us. He created us. He experienced life. Uh, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are and yet without sin. So he empathizes and he sympathizes and he understands what you and I are experiencing. And so he represents us before the throne of God. Now there are two individuals who will deal with you about your sin. There's the Holy Spirit and there's Satan. The Holy Spirit will reprove you of your sin. Satan will remind you of your sin. Now the word reprove could also be translated convict. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts you. He reproves you. How do you know that you have sinned? Well, the, Holy, the, the, the job of the Holy Spirit with an unbeliever or even with a Christian as far as that goes is to convict us of our sin. When we do something wrong, you know, Billy Graham has said that to him the greatest evidence that God exists is the conscience. Every person born into this world has a conscience. The conscience responsibility is to tell you and show you the difference between what's right and what is wrong. The conscience convicts you when you do wrong and confirms you when you do right. And the Holy Spirit conveys his will with your conscience, with your spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit. And when you sin, the Holy Spirit will convict you. He will prick you in the heart. You will be miserable with like a broken bone in your body until things get right between you and the Lord. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit back into you. And when he comes into the world, he will convict the world of sin. That's his job, among other things is to convict you and convince you that you have done wrong. Now, when Satan does it, Satan does it to accuse you. I read about a man who went to see a psychiatrist. He said, Doc, I've got to have help with my wife. The psychologist asked, well, what's the matter? The husband said, well, every time we get in an argument, she gets historical. And he said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, historical. She brings up all the past things that I've ever done. You know, that's what the devil does. The devil loves to go back into the past of your life and drag out all the dirty clothes that you've done and all the dirty deeds and sins that you've ever committed. If you have confessed those sins, it's not God who's bringing it to your memory. It's the devil. He loves to torment you. He loves to see you in agony. And he will bring out those past sins and say, oh, don't you remember you did this and you said that? The next time the devil does that to you, bringing up your past, you remind him of his future. Because he's going to spend eternity in hell. We're not, and I'm not, because of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit will convict you if you've not confessed and received forgiveness of that sin. He will convict you, but the devil will accuse you. Now, one of the most famous ink spots in the world is the one that's on the wall in a castle in Germany where it is said that Martin Luther had it out with the devil over the evil ones constant dragging out his sins from the past. The story is told that Satan appeared to the devil, uh, to, to Martin Luther, and he had a long list of sins that Martin Luther, the reformer, had committed. And he unrolled that scroll and he began reading off all the sins 
that Martin Luther had committed this sin and that sin, that sin, that sin, that sin, and that sin. Finally, Luther stood up in anger and he, he cried out, it's all true, Satan. And many more sins I have committed in my life which are known only to God. But you write at the bottom of that list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And then grasping the inkwell on his table, he threw it at the devil who immediately fled. And so that ink spot on the wall in the castle in Germany is a reminder of the devil always accusing, always bringing up the past, but you write underneath every word of it, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Paul talks about this in the book of Colossians, where God the Father took all of the sins that you've ever committed or ever will commit on a scroll and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus died for your sins and his shed blood and his shed blood alone can cleanse. There's an example of this in the Old Testament. Let me hurriedly remind you of this. It's in the book of Zechariah, the third chapter of the book of Zechariah. Time's running out, so let me hurry with it. In third chapter of Zechariah, verse one, Joshua makes an appearance before the Lord. This is in heaven. This is the vision that, that Zechariah had. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is Christ. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is in the third chapter of Zechariah. Here's Joshua standing in the presence of the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ. And the devil is by his side accusing him. You know, he did this in the book of Job. You read the first chapter of the book of Job. And among the angels that appeared before the Lord was Satan. God asked him, what have you been doing? Going up and down the land to and fro. What do you think about my servant Job? Oh, you're protecting him and making all kinds of accusations. If you'll just take that wall of protection down from him, he'll curse you accusing Job of being unfaithful to the Father. Same thing happens here to Zacharias. Verse two, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if, if the angel of the Lord is not the Lord, then, then what's he doing talking to himself? Listen, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. You remember, Michael wouldn't, wouldn't rebuke the devil because he knew that it would take someone more powerful than he. Only God can do that. He said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, Say, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festive robes. So he changed his garments. Same thing like the prodigal son. When he returned, he got his garments changed. When you sin and repent and turn to the Lord and help for forgiveness and help, he'll forgive you. He'll speak up for you. That's what the Lord does. Notice not only his, his, his role as an advocate, but he is our propitiation. Man, that's a big old word, isn't it? What does it mean? He is our propitiation. Well, just translate it, satisfaction. Satisfaction, that's what it means. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for you, he met the requirements of the law Romans 8, chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit, not after the law. Jesus fulfilled all of the requirements of the law and satisfied the demands of the law through his sacrificial death on the cross and becoming a substitute for you and for me. And God was satisfied by what he had done. Now, in conclusion, only God does two things for you when he cleanses you. 
when, or when you confess. One is that he forgives you, and the other one is that he cleanses you. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to what? Forgive and to cleanse. Forgive and cleanse. From what? From all sin. From a few sins? No, from all. All of them. You confess, he forgives, and he cleanses. A few years ago, Consumer Reports magazine published a booklet with an intriguing title, How to Clean Practical Anything. Practically Anything. It offers advice on what solvent to use to remove a wide assortment of stains. Glycerin, for example, will remove stains made by a ballpoint pen. Boiling water can remove berry stains. Vinegar gets rid of crayon marks. Bleach works well for mildew. Lemon juice performs minor miracles on rust. What you will not find in this little booklet is how to deal with the most serious stain of all, the stain made on your life by sin. Deep, ugly stains made by hostile words or shame-filled actions. Tears won't remove them. Zeal can't erase them. The Bible tells us just one thing and one thing alone can take away the stain of our sins, and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. Someone has said, sin forsaken is the best evidence of sin forgiven. If iniquity, an interesting thing about the book of Job, and I'm through with this verse, out of the book of Job, chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, Job is supposedly being comforted by these so-called friends of his who are actually there to accuse him and to get him to confess that he's done some terrible sin in order to, to have to go through all the suffering that he's gone through. And Zophar says to him, if, if you want to be able to spread your hands before the Lord and be accepted of him, then if iniquity is in your hand, put it away. And do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. What does all that mean? Well, of course, Zophar was wrong in accusing Job because Job was innocent of what he was accusing him of. But he was right for any of us who want to have an ongoing, careful, good, wholesome, enjoyable relationship with Jesus Christ if iniquity is in your hand. If you have committed sin, put it away from you. Well, how do you put it away from it? You pray and you repent and you confess and you ask Jesus to forgive you. And then he says, don't let wickedness dwell in your tent. Just another way of saying, don't let it be in your heart. Don't confess it and get forgiveness of it and then get up and go right back and do the same thing all over again. Get rid of it, get it out of your life. Don't go back to it. That's what repentance is. You turn away from it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. May we bow together, please. Father, how encouraged we are by your holy word. We believe that it is your word and it is truth. And we believe that you are a God of your word. You're faithful and just to do exactly what you have said regarding our sins. 
when we first as a sinner called upon your son's name and repented of sins and trusted him as Lord and Savior, you forgave us. But now as your children, we realize that constantly we are in battle against the devil and the devil hates us and he's trying to trip us up and, and cause us to sin and tempts us to do so. And we're being human, sometimes yield to those temptations. And when we do, we sin. But we thank you that when that does happen, we don't lose our sonship, our relationship with you. It's that fellowship that disrupts. And we ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for the encouragement that we have, knowing as frail humans as we are, you love us and care for us the way that you do. Should there be one here today, Lord, who's never trusted you as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit of God, do your work of conviction. Help them to realize their need to trust Christ in turning from their sins and embracing him and inviting him into their hearts and their lives as Lord and Savior. Bless this time of invitation. May it be to your honor and to your glory is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Chris is going to come and lead us. Let's stand, please. And as we sing our hymn of invitation, you come. <laughs>